Isaiah 61 is a prophecy about what we see in our passage in Mark, about Jesus Christ coming in the power of the Spirit to preach the good news. Let's read the whole chapter. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations." Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness." As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Amen. This morning our sermon comes from the book of Mark. Remember, we're continuing... In our study on the Gospel of Mark, our passage this morning is Mark 1, 9 through 15. It's Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. As you turn there, just before we read the passage, remember what we saw two weeks ago. Remember, we just started the the Gospel of Mark. We looked at the first eight verses together. And we saw that these opening verses, actually verse 1 all the way to verse 15, are introducing us to Jesus. We are seeing who Jesus is and what he's come to do. We know he's the Son of God, our promised Savior. And that is very clear for us from these opening verses. And we need to keep that clear identity of Jesus in mind as we go through the rest of Mark. If you also remember, we saw part of the ministry of John the Baptist as well. John the Baptist was preparing the people for the coming of Jesus Christ. That was John's ministry, preparing people for Jesus. But now in our passage, we finally meet Jesus Christ himself. Let's start reading in verse chapter or verse 9. Now in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. 
The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What we see here in this passage is we meet Jesus is that God provides His own Son to be the Savior that we need. God provides His own Son to be the Savior that each one of us needs. We're going to see that Jesus is first the anointed Son in verses 9 through 11. Then we're going to see He is the obedient Son in verses 12 to 13. And finally, we're going to see He is the proclaiming Son in verses 14 to 15. So first, Jesus is the anointed Son, verses 9 through 11. Remember, John the Baptist, he's baptizing people, but he's also preaching. And in verses 7 to 8, John the Baptist preached a sermon preparing the people for Jesus. He said, Jesus is mightier than John. He is mightier than the greatest prophet that God ever sent. And he also said, Jesus is coming, and what he's going to do is so much greater than what I, John the Baptist, could do. He's going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The expectations of the people are high. And the expectations don't seem to fit the Jesus who actually shows up. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Here's an ordinary looking man, just a man it seems, from Nazareth in Galilee. That, that's one of the most out-of-the-way places in Israel. Certainly not where you would expect a great man to come from. And he also comes to be baptized by John. Can Imagine the questions. If Jesus is who John really says he is, if Jesus is God coming to be with his people, well then what the people are seeing doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, where is God the King? Isn't that who we expect? The one who comes in power to save and to judge. This is just an ordinary looking man. This is a carpenter's son. And also, if this man is God, why is he being baptized by John? Shouldn't he be baptizing John instead? John himself actually asks Jesus that very question. He doesn't understand either. But if we do understand who Jesus is and what he came to do, then all of what we see here makes sense. Because we see our humble Savior who stands in our place. Jesus was baptized to perfectly submit to God's law in our place. Remember what John's baptism is all about. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, the only person who would never have needed that kind of baptism, is Jesus. He doesn't need to repent because he never sinned. But Jesus tells John in the book of Matthew that he's doing this. He must be baptized, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus, by being baptized, was fulfilling what God required of him. And actually all faithful believers By being baptized. But that also points us to the fact that Jesus was being baptized by John in our place. 
right? We need a perfect Savior. We need a Savior who has actually kept the whole law because then he's actually qualified to be the Savior. He is the spotless, perfect, sinless Lamb. But we also need Jesus to be baptized, to obey in our place, to be that perfect Savior so that his obedience can now be counted as ours. Jesus was baptized that day because you and I are sinners. We haven't perfectly obeyed God, not even close. And when Jesus saves us, then his perfect obedience from his birth all the way forward, including this baptism, is counted as ours. We are declared righteous in God's sight. But Jesus' baptism is special. It's special in the life of Jesus because it marks a new stage of his life and ministry. Jesus obeyed perfectly all throughout his life, but he never had something like this happen before. Look at how God responds to Jesus' baptism in verses 10 through 11. And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. These these verses are one of the most remarkable passages in the Bible. We We have God the Son coming out of the water, God the Spirit descending like a dove, and God the Father speaking from heaven. This is a a clear proof of the doctrine of the Trinity, right? That God is one God who exists in three persons. But this passage is actually even more remarkable because of what is taking place. God the Spirit is anointing the Son. And God the Father is approving the Son to be the Savior that we need. That's actually what's happening here. Jesus, God's Son, is being prepared and proclaimed to be the promised Savior. Now we know Jesus start being the Savior that day, right? No. His work started from the moment of His conception, but now there is a change because He's beginning His public ministry. Now is when He starts to go and preach. Now is when He starts to go and teach and to um, conduct miracles. And this is where He's now started on His journey toward the cross and the resurrection. So this is a new period in Jesus' ministry. Let's look at the details here of how God prepares Jesus to be that Savior. First, we see that the heavens are torn open above Jesus' head. This, This is a dramatic sign of God's presence. Jesus is able to look straight up into heaven and to see His Father. But Jesus also sees the Spirit descending like a dove. This is a visible anointing of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. You may remember that anointing is very important in the Old Testament. The people and and things which served God in important ways were anointed with oil. They're the prophets, the priests, the kings. Even the tabernacle was anointed with oil. And that anointing was always pointing to the presence of the Holy Spirit who, who set these men and these things apart and then gave them the power that they needed to serve God. Now that Old Testament picture was also put together with the Old Testament prophecies that there was going to come a man who God would give His Spirit to without measure. We saw Isaiah 61 just now as we were reading 
our scripture reading, that God is promising to send His Spirit. And those pictures in the Old Testament, those prophecies, we now see fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is publicly set apart as the Savior, as He anointed with the Holy Spirit. He is set apart and He is empowered by that same Spirit to do the entire work of salvation. If you think about what Jesus is doing as the anointed Savior, He is that true prophet. He is the true prophet who in salvation speaks the words of life. He is also the true priest who gives His own life for us. And Jesus is also the anointed true King who defeats Satan and death. And he does this, and so much more in the power of the Holy Spirit. We see God equipping the Son to be the Savior that we need. But there's more here because God the Father also speaks. And when God the Father speaks, he acknowledges who Jesus truly is. And he approves Jesus and the work he's about to do. First, we see the Father acknowledging who Jesus truly is. He says, you are my beloved Son. Now, we know God the Father isn't making Jesus his Son. That's impossible because Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took to himself a human nature. He always is God the Son. But God the Father is acknowledging that Jesus is his Son, especially in relation to his work of salvation. He is being declared to be God's son who will save his people. Now, what do I mean by that? Why is it important that he's called God's son now? Let's look at the Old Testament. There are other people who have been called God's son. Think about Adam being created by God. You can think about Israel being called a son in the book of Exodus, or the kings, the kings of Israel, are being treated like sons by God. Look at 2 Samuel 7, God's promise to David. But Jesus here has more than just a special relationship with God the Father. Those men had a special relationship. Jesus has a unique relationship. God says, you are my beloved son. There is no one else like you, Jesus, Everybody in the Old Testament was pointing forward to this son who is going to come. This son also who is going to come to work salvation. One of the clearest places we see the work of the son, the identity of the son is Psalm 2. We didn't read it this morning, but think about Psalm 2. God promises there that this, my anointed one, he's just been anointed with the Holy Spirit, this is my anointed one, I have made you my son, and you will reign as my king. This is the work of Jesus. God is approving him. He's saying, this is my son, and this is the work that you are going to do. So when God the Father proclaims Jesus to be his son, he is focused on Jesus' work of salvation as that promised king who will come to save his people. But God the Father also tells Jesus, with you I am well pleased. And in those words, God is approving Jesus and his work. Now when we think of approving, we might think of, you know, we need to affirm one another. We need to tell encouraging words to one another. That's not entirely what's going on here. This is way more than a pep talk, right? 
God the Father is not just saying, you know, I'm really proud of you, Jesus. I think you're going to do a good job. No. These are words of assurance, powerful words of assurance from the Father because God the Father is expressing His unchanging love for His Son. And He's doing it as Jesus embarks on a very difficult ministry. But the Father's words here also point us back to the Old Testament as well. We heard from Isaiah 61, but similar words are actually in Psalm uh, Isaiah 42. God says, Behold my servant, whom up I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. You know, those prophecies from Isaiah 61, Isaiah 42, they sound very similar to what we are seeing in these verses in Mark. Jesus is God's chosen servant. If you look through the book of Isaiah, this chosen servant appears multiple times, actually. And he is rightly called the suffering servant. Remember Isaiah 53. And this, this is the ministry of Jesus. This is the ministry of Jesus, the true servant. God is telling him, you are my servant, the one whom I love, I have chosen, I delight in, but I'm calling you to a ministry of suffering. I am calling you to a ministry of death. I am calling you to a ministry of the cross. But even as God says that Jesus is my servant, and this is what his ministry is going to be like, God the Father's words here also point to Jesus' success because that suffering servant doesn't stay dead. No, he triumphs. Remember how Isaiah 53 finishes. He will look and see all that he has done. He brings justice to the nations. He saves his people and he is blessed by God. So as the Father speaks these words to Jesus, he is describing the nature of Jesus' ministry, but he's also encouraging Jesus with the promise of victory. You will be a suffering servant, but also a victorious son. Now, I want to ask the question to you. Think about this. Did Jesus the Son really need to hear these words from the Father? Did he really need to hear these words? Because if you look at Mark's account really closely, only Jesus seems to be the one who sees the Holy Spirit and hears the Father's words. Mark doesn't talk about anyone else seeing this. This is for Jesus' benefit. Did Jesus really need to hear these words? The answer is yes. If you don't think so, and if I don't think so, then we really have no idea how Jesus' ministry really was and what the price of our salvation really, truly is. If you want to just um, have a taste of Jesus' ministry, the difficulty of ministry, look at Jesus crying out to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faces the cross. Or go and watch him hang on the cross and hear him asking his Father why his Father, his own Father, has forsaken him. That is suffering that you and I cannot even begin to comprehend. And to understand that he willingly did this. He chose to suffer like this for us because of our sin. That's the ministry of Jesus. And in those 
deep, dark moments of Jesus' ministry, he needed the comfort of these words from his father, that his suffering will end in victory, and that the father delights in his faithful work, even his faithful work to die for his people. That's what's contained in God the Father's words for Jesus. So God in his anointing by the Holy Spirit and in the words of approval and assurance by the Father, God is equipping and encouraging the Son to do the difficult work of saving his sinful people, of saving you and I. So this is really what we see then. Is first is that he is the anointed son. But next we're going to look at the Jesus being the obedient son, verses 12 to 13. And I'm going to say, we're going to look at these next two points about the obedient son, the proclaiming son, a little more briefly this morning. Because the, the baptism and the approval of God really sets up what Jesus has come to do. And we see that as, God, as Jesus goes out into the wilderness to obey, as he goes into Galilee to proclaim what we do see next in verses 12 to 13 is Jesus beginning his public ministry, except it's not in public, right? It's in the wilderness, and it's only Jesus and Satan, a few animals and some angels. Notice how this starts. The Spirit, same Spirit that anointed him, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. If you remember what I said the last time we were in Mark, the wilderness is a place of new beginnings, It's where Israel became God's people on Mount Sinai. And it's the place where John and Jesus begin their work. But the wilderness is also a place of testing. We see that testing very clearly in verse 13. And Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. The first act of Jesus' public ministry was to face off with Satan. It wasn't to preach, wasn't to teach, wasn't to work miracles, but it was to be faithful in resisting Satan's temptations. And this is how we see that Jesus is the obedient son that we all need. Because if Jesus gives in to Satan's temptations here in the wilderness, then our hope of salvation is completely ruined. If we look at the other Gospels, we see Satan's temptations here were very powerful. Satan tempted Jesus to not trust God as Father. And he tempted Jesus to choose another way to glory instead of the way of the cross. Satan's temptations here show that he's playing for keeps. He is trying to knock Jesus down at the very beginning. You know, this past week I was on the internet, I was reading about uh, someone fighting Muhammad Ali. I think it was George Frazier. I'm not a big boxing fan, but this passage came to mind. Because George Frazier was told, you knock Muhammad Ali out in the first round, or the second round, or the third round, and you'll win. Guess what? Ali won. Why? Because he hit him, and he hit him, and he hit him, and Ali resisted and won. This is what's happening in the wilderness. Satan is trying to land his best shots on Jesus to take him out as the chosen son, and he fails. 
You know, Mark doesn't record the specific temptations or Jesus' responses because he's trying to paint that bigger picture of Jesus being that tested but obedient son, the one who resists. But Jesus also is shown to be more than that. Forty days. Think about that number. Forty days. He's in the wilderness. He's a son of God. All of this is supposed to point us back to Israel as well. They went, in the, they went into the wilderness to be the people of God. If you read Exodus and Numbers, they failed miserably. Moses in the book of Deuteronomy walks them through their failures step by step by step. They repeatedly gave in to the temptations of Satan. How do we see that? Well, they complained against God seemingly nonstop. And they followed so many other gods. Think about the, the time of the golden calf. They failed to be God's son. And God sent his own son, Jesus, into the wilderness to obey even stronger temptations of Satan than Israel ever faced, so that his son could redeem his sinful people. But Jesus' work in resisting Satan as the obedient son also points us even further back to Adam. Adam in the Garden of Eden. Think, Think about the differences here. Adam had every advantage for his obedience, right? He lived in perfect communion with God. There was no sin in the world or in his heart. And he had the power to resist Satan. And yet he failed. Adam disobeyed God and he brought sin and death into every part of God's good creation. Mark shows us that Jesus is the second Adam, the true son of God, obeying where Adam did not. And the difficulty of obeying for Jesus is so much higher than it ever was for Adam Because Jesus has come into this world that is full of sin. That's part of the picture that that Mark shows us here with the wilderness and the wild animals. These are the effects of sin. But Jesus successfully resists Satan. The battle isn't over. We see Jesus and Satan continually fighting this war throughout the rest of the book. But we see Jesus as the obedient son. Jesus as the victorious son as well. Because Jesus resists Satan here, but he does the same thing in his obedience throughout the book. Think about how Jesus won at the cross. How did Jesus finally defeat Satan at the cross? He did it by being obedient. He did it by obeying his father even to the point of death on a cross. Do you see that God has given us the obedient obedient son that we need for our salvation? It's amazing what God has provided for us in Jesus. But God has also given us Jesus as the proclaiming son. That's what we see third and finally in verses 14 to 15. You know, the way that Mark describes these events is that the first thing that Jesus does in public now is to proclaim the gospel. Verse 14 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 15 there is summarizing what Jesus said as he preached. First, he describes what is now true because he's here, because he's arrived on the scene. He says, the time is fulfilled. 
The time promised by God all the way from Genesis 3.15 forward, the time of the promised son, the time of the promised salvation, that time is now fulfilled as Jesus enters Galilee to preach the good news. But Jesus also points to himself and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what I'm here to do. This, this idea of the kingdom of God is another rich description of Jesus and his work. The kingdom of God simply is God's righteous rule on earth. It's one of the great hopes of the Old Testament. And Jesus proclaims that this rule, this promised rule, is starting right here and right now with him. We will see the kingdom of God throughout the gospel of Mark as John or as Jesus exercises authority as God to drive back the kingdom of Satan by casting out demons, by healing the sick, and by preaching the good news to teach with authority like no man ever taught, and to finally rule by bringing about the kingdom of God through his death and his resurrection. Jesus proclaims, in his message, he proclaims the facts of the gospel of God that God's promise of salvation, all of his promises of salvation are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But Jesus' words here show that good news requires a response. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. He's telling the people of his day and the people of our day, repent of your sins. Repent of your sins and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God that you need. Jesus is proclaiming the only way of salvation. It was true when he said it, and it's true today. God requires each and every one of us to repent of our sins, to truly see how bad our sins are, to see how they offend our holy God, to ask him for forgiveness, and to turn away from them and to hate them but to do more by actually turning to Jesus in faith. That's what it means to believe in the gospel here, to know and believe that Jesus is that Son and Savior that we need and to trust in Him alone for salvation. So many people get Jesus' message wrong. Jesus did not come to teach people how to be good or to tell them about how much God loves them. He did say some of those things about how to obey God and he did come to show them and to teach them about God's love. Now, some people say Jesus was just a... He came to perform miracles and to show God's power. But no, Jesus came to do more. Jesus, the Son, came to faithfully proclaim the gospel. And not just to proclaim it, but to bring that good news to pass in his own obedience and his own death and his own resurrection. He came to proclaim the message of His Father and the power of the Holy Spirit and to bring about our promised salvation through His own life, death, and resurrection. I said at the beginning that God provides His own Son to be the Savior that we need. So we see here in this passage what a Son Jesus really is. What a Savior He really is. As we close, I want you to think about how Jesus, as the Son, affects your life now. And I said, Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. That's the first application. That if you see Jesus as the Son now, and you recognize that you have not turned to Him, this is your chance.
This is your time. The Son is speaking to you today. And He's saying, come to me. But also, I want to encourage each one of us to rely on the Son. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has not stopped being that anointed, obedient, and proclaiming Son. Actually, He's even more now. Because we see Him at the beginning of His ministry, but now we know He is the exalted Son as well. Let me show you how this affects your life now. Because Jesus is the anointed Savior right now, you can trust that Jesus will save you and protect you every step of the way. Because He remains a strong Savior who is acting in the power of the Holy Spirit to work out God's plan of salvation for His people. Sure, He doesn't have to earn salvation anymore. No, he's already done that part. But he is still an anointed, strong Savior to apply salvation to you, to bring you to faith, to bless you with holiness, to encourage you in times of difficulty, and to bring each one of us safe to heaven. And because Jesus is the obedient Son, the one who obeys, you can trust him to help you in your sins. We all struggle with temptations. We know that. And we know how often we actually sin. But Jesus stands as our high priest who knows exactly what it's like to be tempted and who knows what it's like to resist so he can actually help us. He offers that forgiveness. He offers that help in time of need. And he also offers that power of his own obedience to help us to fight Satan and sin. And third, because Jesus is the proclaiming Son, right now He is the proclaiming Son, you can trust His Word today. Because the good news of the Gospel, that there is free salvation in Jesus Christ, remains as true today as it was when Jesus first preached. Jesus, the Son, invites you to come to Him, to find in Him the power that you need the obedience that you lack, the gospel of salvation that he promises. He invites you to trust him in all circumstances and those who come to him will never, ever be disappointed. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us Jesus, your son. We thank you that he is exactly what we need in all areas of our life. That he came to save us. That he's at work in us through your spirit to be sanctifying us. That you have also promised us that your work will never end. And that we will be able to actually be with Jesus in heaven. And that as he is a son that you've adopted us as sons as well. And that we can be with you forever. We thank you, Lord, for the good news of the gospel. We pray that each one of us here would believe it and grow in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.